You're listening to Dead Air Podcast, part of SplatterPictures.net. What's up, everybody? Wes, Dead Air Nipe here with, always, Typical Lydia. Today's show, we're going to be doing the 1986 horror comedy, House. Now, it's a movie from the 80s. It's a comedy. And, dear listeners, wasn't my idea. It was Lydia's. Damn straight it was. So anyway, I'm going to get to the fucking bottom of this. What gives? Why did you want to do this film? I love House. This is one of my favorite horror comedies if i have a favorite horror comedy that didn't come out in the last four years Mm -hmm. we talked about the covers of videos in the blood widow episode that was the impetus really for choosing that movie and we talked about video covers and that's really what this comes down to with houses the cover it was up there with the cover of maniac that was another one of our earlier Mm. episodes where we talked about the cover being so very important in our like horror heritage and why we're the horror fans we are today House was one of those ones that I would see in the video store all of the time. And I love that hand. I wanted to watch Ding Dong, You're Dead for so long until I worked up the nerve to rent it. My parents worked up the, like, got convinced enough to Mm -hmm. let me rent it. Uh, Luckily, it wasn't as scary as any of us thought it would be. But it was still really, really entertaining. I loved it. I loved, I still love this. Watching it now, I still love everything i loved about it then it hasn't aged itself out to me it might have to other viewers but to me it still holds all of the same things that i loved so much about it when i first first watched it even that fucking hand i still see the cover and i love it i have a different cover now that has a house on it and it has the letters of the word house overlaid on top of the ding dong you're dead hand (laughs) and like I was saying, I want a shirt. I don't wear shirts, so I'd but I'd buy well, the shirt in this hand. Guys, she wears shirts. She doesn't she wear graphic tees. Like I'm wearing much. a shirt right now. Yeah, yeah, but and it is kind of horror shirt. It's like yeah, a, it's like a mesh skull shirt. I like yeah, it. It's awesome. But um, yeah, I'd put it in like a shadow box or something. I don't know something cool because that <laughs> hand is just so iconic. Mm-hmm. I'd make a pillow out of it. I think. That would be a fall, oh my God, a house pillow. Yeah. You know, you have like the title treatment on one side and then the fucking finger would ding dong, you're dead. Oh my God, it's amazing. Crafts people out there, craft me this pillow and send it to me. And I'm not even joking. Make me something. Anyways, it's funny that you mentioned the cover. It's interesting to me that you also said Maniac as well. These are both uh, iconic horror covers that have a couple of things in common. One is that they're original art. It's not a still frame from a film. It's, it, it, in my opinion, the way movie covers are meant to be. Well, like just, good, good book covers. Are like Oh, my God, right? That's what you want. You want original art. But they're iconic and they tell a story, but they don't really tell you what the movie actually is. Maniac, you, you could infer from the title and the fact that it's a dude who really likes denim and has got a big old knife and a, and a scalp in one hand. All right, cool. Yeah, he's probably killing people house and it's makes sense that your parents were kind of like sucking their teeth i don't know i don't know because 
That's a really scary looking image. This movie could be anything. You see a severed zombie hand ringing a doorbell, ding dong, you're dead. Yeah, it's a funny tagline, no doubt about it, but it could really imply anything. And I mean, it could even be so much as, as like people invading, like because it looks like the evil is coming to the door and uh, and that hand doesn't happen in the movie. So it's just like this really interesting thing created for the advertisement of the flick that everybody remembers. Yeah, it's amazingly eye-catching. It's the sort of thing where even like weeks after renting it, you see it in the video store and your <laughs> yeah. eye is caught by this awesome cover that you still oh, love. Yeah. And you're just like, I remember you. Oh, I liked yeah. you. Pointing oh, out yeah. to your friends. You're like, guys, guys, have you seen this? We rented this a couple weeks ago. It's fucking dope. I and mean, years later, years fucking later. What, 30 fucking years later? Yeah, 30 years. Okay. I'm yeah. still looking at this cover going like, yeah. Oh, yeah. I yeah. want to watch that. Oh, fuck yeah. Ding dong, you're dead. <laughs> As I've gotten older and become a little bit more of a horror nerd, the thing that I love about the, this film is the fact that it's produced by Sean Cunningham. Sean Cunningham, to horror fans, needs no introduction, but this is the dude that is responsible for things like Friday the 13th, and he worked with Wes Craven on uh, Last House on the Left, stuff like that. He's got a producer credit on this, and you can see him all over it. Sometimes, guys, producers... You can have a producer credit on a film and you know, you're not there every day. But like this kind of strikes me as so Sean Cunningham-y because it has so many people that this guy has worked with in the past. And like we said, there's a reference to Wes Craven in the actual Yeah, the narrative. name of the realtor, realty company that's taking care of the house is Craven Real Estate. Yeah, you have like, you know, you have um, Steve Miner, director of Friday the 13th Part 2 and um, Harry Manfrendini, who's done the score. Which really surprised me. That was one I didn't even know. And I've watched this like many, many times as a kid and I wouldn't have noticed something like that as a kid. But even like doing some research now and having watched it, I didn't even look. I didn't even notice that in, mm -hmm. in the credits. I'll, and that came up when there was a part where some of the score gets a little bit funky a little bit yeah. digital, a little bit new age. And I was like, what the fuck? And you're like, so Manfredini's playing around. And I was like, oh, wow. Okay. Mm -hmm. There are there are musical cues in this film that especially when you're doing establishing shots of the house or especially when uh, you have this critter that's going to be coming out of the cu of the closet, there are... Musical hits that, like, that, that are classic so, Manfredini. So fucking classic. And yeah. you're like, oh, my God. It is unmistakable who's who's doing this also like connected to this film through like a, a very tangential sean cunningham is the fact that uh billy cat is starring in this fucking flick and he, you know he's in carrie 1976 and sean cunningham you know you can watch any documentary about friday the 13th uh, uh crystal lake memories is the one that i recommend the most and he uh sean cunningham will will talk about how the fact that the ending of Carrie with Sissy SpaceX arms coming out of the rubble was exactly why they did an ending where Jason comes out of the water at the end of that movie is because of the fact that he's, he's just like, no, yeah, it worked for that movie. I want to do it in this movie. Same thing about how he was very blatant about the fact that, oh, Halloween, that was a really good, big success. You want to rip it off here? <laughs> Let's do Friday the 13th. And, and then, of course, ultimately, stunt coordinating. Who's that? Kane Hodder. Kane Hodder, which was awesome. And watching the credits, we knew that he was the stunt coordinator, but he is also credited as an actor in the, yeah. in the cast. So he's on screen cast somewhere yeah. in this film. Yeah. I was trying to remember to keep my eyes peeled for him 
when we were watching this movie. I was like, where do you, where do I think Kane would be in this? I know his, his acting style when he's, when he's being very physical, well, he's like stunt doing his stunt work. He's very easy to recognize. I know his body shape and his height. So like, can I kind of pick out where he is? Like Richard Mole's character. I don't think he'd be in that outfit at all. Like, no, not at all because bold plays Ben just fine. And we're pretty sure that's, bowl for all of those mm-hmm. shots mm-hmm. so the only real candidate i can think of is the ex-wife when she comes back from the dead yeah bloated and stubby looking and short and i mean like, kane hunter's not bloated but like he's so he's so he's wide not super super tall not as tall as richard mall no no exactly not bull is such a good nickname for that guy <laughs> yeah. richard balls in this fucking this movie like like this is this really has Comedy gold. Comedy gold. It's primetime 80s comedy gold, (laughs) which probably was part of what, once my parents flipped it over and read it, was like, oh, yeah, yeah, sure, you can rent this because it's not going to be like Last House on the Left at all. Oh, my God, yeah. Ding dong, you're dead. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. If only it were. I'd love to see a really dark adaptation of this, by the by. You kind of comedy you, out of this. You said the exact same thing about the gate last week. Yeah, where you're just like, I just want it to be dark. Well, I want everything to be dark. <laughs> but yeah, um, that would have been one of those things that my parents like would have been watching this with me and seen like, oh, cool bull, and like walk out of the room and come back. And my Norm, parents would be yeah. like, Norm. Yeah, George yeah. Wentz in this fucking bitch. It's fucking amazing. They would love that. Totally mm-hmm. love that. And and there's a bunch of other little bit characters like in the audience line and stuff like that. People that you recognize are in this flick. One thing I really like about House is that it is one of the very, very few horror movies that have a root in post-traumatic stress disorder, which wasn't even really a thing back then. Shell shock was a thing. And that was something that was made a little apparent to even like young kids like me learn through osmosis, what shell shock and the tragedies of war and what coming back home from war was like. Uh, There's just not enough horror really about it. This one does deal with that in the writer's life as well, this blending of these two, these really nebulous concepts that most people can't really understand unless you're in that person's shoes. And I can't think of off the top, and I devoted all of 10 minutes trying to think of one another horror film that has to do with post-traumatic stress disorder and the only one that really came to mind which does have the seven degrees of separation horror world kind of feel like all of the cast members we've been talking about is the ninth configuration Mm, which isn't really a horror film but it is based on a book called twinkle twinkle killer kane by william peter blatty who also wrote the Mm, exorcist the exorcist yeah but I do like this post-traumatic stress disorder angle. We have uh, we've done a, a film recently, fairly recently, that had a bit of post-traumatic stress disorder angle. That's where we did Flatliners. Now the, the the movie's not about that, but it is one of the stories in there deals with post-traumatic stress disorder. And to get all seven degrees of separation and weirdness from this particular movie, House, the aunt played by Susan French was the old lady in Flatliners who's like relaying all of her like final recollections yeah. to what's her face with the red hair. Julia Roberts. Oh, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> to that girl. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
I like that you mentioned that Flatliners, the new one, is not going to be a reboot but a sequel. Yeah, that was that was literally something that I've just learned. As we were actually watching the movie, I happened to look at my phone. I was like, oh, Kiefer Sutherland says that it's going to be a sequel. More horror awesomeness about this fucking movie is that it was written, well, the screenplay is written by Fred Decker, who did Night of the Creeps, Monster Squad. Monster Squad, yeah. Two massive fucking horror movies from the 1980s. I recently rewatched Night of the Creeps because I had a massive hankering to watch that movie like it was one of those things where i walk past my wall of movies and i keep seeing the spine for night of the creeps and i was like i'm gonna i'm gonna get to that one i'm gonna get to that one i don't know why but i just i really want to watch it and then walk past again a couple days later i'm like yeah you night of the creeps you you me baby this is happening fucking three weeks go by and then finally i'm like um like i'm so determined like i'm ordering a pizza i'm grabbing this movie it is tonight. It's like a date night with you and Night of the Creeps. <laughs> He's writing the Predator, uh, or wrote the Predator, the upcoming Predator film. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if it'll be anything like Monster Squad. You know, the funny thing, if you want to do this fucking six degrees of separation on this fucking flick, mm-hmm. uh, Sean Black was one of the original people that was uh, working with Decker on this. Uh, this film was inspired by the Twilight Zone movie that... Um, they wanted to that that came out in 83 82 83 or something like that and uh they were originally all going to do an anthology horror this movie was the one segment that decker was going to do crazy became the whole film oh my gosh okay i love this movie for (laughs) even more reasons yeah no wonder it had such an impact on me as a kid yeah that makes a lot of sense. Like, it, it's just one of, it's just got so much going on. On the production level, like, I'm such a horror trivia nerd that I love this type of shit. Like, when there's a million different stories. Like, typically speaking, I'm like, here's my one fact about that one film. But this movie's got so many fun little facts in it. That's just what we could glean watching it and being semi-interested in doing cursory research. Yeah. It's not like we spent three weeks fucking digging up all the gems on this one. Yeah. There's probably all kinds of them hidden in this house. Mm-hmm. Speaking of degrees of separation, mm-hmm. you want to hear something fun about horror things being like too close for comfort and... Horror making strange bedfellows? I mean, you're making me uncomfortable, but yes, go. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's not that uncomfortable. I'm going to be on the next episode of Bind Torture Cast. Again? I know, right? Uh, Guys, let me tell you what it's like to sit across the table every week from a fucking overachiever, horror author, horror expert, podcast maven, and I'm just sitting here like hot garbage. Doing nothing. It's not unattractive. It's a look. It's a look for you, Wes. <laughs> I like it. <sighs> so what, yeah, what? by the time this so by the time this episode drops, it'll probably be airing, I'm pretty sure. So if you guys want a double dose of Lydia, a hot injection of Lydia, a hot steamy beef injection of Lydia. And Chris. And Chris, he's there too. But you will get twice as li- much Lydia for next week. The sick part is you might get three times as much. Because I think the horrors of Nachos and Hamantash episode drops right around then. So I think like I'll probably be crawling into it like a deep, dark hole underground just to hide away for a little while after that. I think that uh, you talk to your talk to your doctor of taking Lydia three times a week is right for you. <laughs> <sighs> is he really a doctor or does he just play one on TV? I don't know. I mean, he, just, he maybe call him Dr. Feelgood. I'm pretty excited, though, because it's a film that we're covering on Buy and Torture Cast that 
I wanted to see for three fucking years. Not a film that a lot of people are talking about. So I'm so excited to be able to talk about it on the show and super excited as always to do a show with my most favorite person in the entire planet, Chris. You know, I am sitting right fucking across from you. So. <laughs> Fuck this. <laughs> you fucking like Chris too. I like Chris, but not more than you, dipshit. Podcast canceled. We're fucking, this is over. This is the last episode. You just fucking like make all your podcasts with Chris, your favorite person in the world. Sicko. Sicko. You don't mean that. No, I don't mean that. No, because we have another hour and a half at least to talk about house. (laughs) And then next week we're doing 1408. And then after that, we're doing Maximum Overdrive because we're kind of in this like Stranger Things kind of thing, which is weird. It just works out comfortably because we had scheduled all of this without that film being even on our radar or that show being even on our radar. Yeah, Stranger Things, yeah. Yeah. So we've got like all these really like cool summer, fun, 80s comedy. Yes, the comedy. I think you're more <laughs> shocked than anything. I'm super fucking pumped to do Maximum Overdrive, by the way. Yeah, like, me too. That is a massive, massive movie from my childhood. And I, I'm just so fucking excited. I'm super excited. And I really like the duality between this particular movie and 1408 as well. Mm. So I'm really excited to talk about that. Another interesting thing about Chris. Oh, good. I can't stop talking about him. <laughs> is we had our dual podcast um, request that just worked out so fantastically. Their society episode just dropped. So if you want to hear a little more teasing about the upcoming Chris and Lydia show... You can tune into the Vine Torture Cast Society episode specifically for our friend that had requested Society Be Done. It's mm-hmm. out now, so do it. Yeah. What's this movie even about? That's what I want to know. Oh, wait. I know exactly what it's about. Yeah, we totally just watched it. <laughs> this is where we are introduced to um, a creepy old house. It's not that creepy, but it's going to get really creepy. It's got some interesting decor. It's got some, what do you call modern art on the walls there's a there's a young man that shows up to the home to deliver some groceries to somebody who needs groceries delivered doesn't seem to see anybody there heads upstairs and oh damn this house has got an acute case a dead old lady hanging from the ceiling gonna have to get an old ladyectomy (laughs) jesus It's a beautiful house, though. It really, truly is a beautiful house. You know, the front, the foyer part looked a lot like the house from Dead Alive to me. It did. It did. And we're probably going to be referencing Dead Alive several times, if not a slew of other weird, goony, fucking squishy, gishy or horror movies that are comedy slash spatter because Mm -hmm. this was really quite at home with those. Mm -hmm. Even though it's not not a gory film like Dead Alive is, but... Mm -hmm. It has that same sort of aesthetic to me. Yeah. No, it really, really does. But it's safe for kids. It's absolutely safe for kids. And we get this sometimes on the show. I know we've definitely spent uh, 10 to 15 minutes at one at one episode some point where we were directly asked, what do we think is good to introduce kids to horror? And we were sort of reeling for the time. Sometimes I don't give us enough time. I think that was like a fairly like, here's a tweet. And we just read it. But... We were re- it might have even been the mailbag episode. Might have been the mailbag episode. Yeah. But at the same time, we couldn't really think of like movies. That the, I, I mentioned some things to introduce your kids to the idea of horror. Um, I think primarily the most important thing for kids in horror is like if they understand it's a movie, it should be okay. 
uh, I mean, within reason. I mean, you don't really, like, I'm not saying make them watch Serbian film or something like that, but for the most part, there's a lot of horror out there that's perfectly fine for kids, provided they understand it's just a movie. Now I'm like, how to make kids watch Serbian film? <laughs> Asterix. Um, yeah, and we always go back to the old saws, like uh, Monster Squad, Goonies. Monster Squad, Goonies, but... Waxworks. Mm-hmm. Waxworks. Oh, Waxworks. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I love that movie. That's a deep cut. But it's great for kids, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, it's absolutely like, great And for House kids. is one that just get it gets ignored or forgotten, and I'm not sure, because I rarely ever hear it mentioned. Yeah, and, and I have, like, this weird thing where I'll see a, a, a YouTube montage clip of, like, here's a, here's a bunch of scenes from horror movies set to music, because I love those, especially around Halloween, or... Here we're watching a DVD. Like it was a few weeks ago that that we were watching something, and the trailers at the beginning of the movies uh, started up, and one of them was for House, and it's kind of like, oh yeah, House. <laughs> like you completely forget about it, and then when it pops in front of your face again, you're like, oh yeah, right. I totally love this fucking movie. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> weird. Very weird. How it's. I don't know why. We're gonna have to start like some sort of campaign or something like. To like bring it back. Well, it's this movie came out in nineteen eighty six. It is now twenty sixteen. We are at the thirty anniversary of. It's like house anniversary. <laughs> we should tweet about it incessantly. That's what we should do. Make up some memes quick. Take that horror internet. So after we discover the body of the old lady, this old lady is not just any old lady. She's got a family. She's got connections. She knows people. One of the people that she knows is. Her. One of the people that she knows is Roger. Roger is a Vietnam vet. Roger is an author. He's a professional author. He is a professional author. And I'm just going to skip right to the one time when we're watching this halfway through this film. And Wes turns to me. And I'm going to keep this short because this could turn into a four-hour fucking rant. <laughs> and Wes says, can you buy this much camera equipment on an author's income? Well. And I short-circuited. One of my eyes popped out of my fucking head. <laughs> And I said, I'll answer this on the show. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to keep it fucking short because this could literally be like a 20 fucking hour rant. Seriously. Uh, yeah, no. Yeah, sure. You could definitely afford this on an author's salary. Salary. Income. You could definitely have afforded this back then in the 80s because horror authors, sir, were fucking rock stars. Mm. And four, five, six figure advances weren't unheard of. Like, obscene amounts of money were being paid from time to time for horror novels. The high water mark was hit sometime around 87, 88, 89. I don't know why or for what, because, like, I try to not pay attention to what used to be as far as publishing, because publishing is very, very different now, because there's a lot of, like, small publishers you can self-publish. They're not willing to give out these large advances, especially not to up-and-coming horror writers who could be the fucking next Stephen King, but they're not going to hand them $50,000, you know, $200,000 as an advance when they can give somebody $5,000 and they're going to be so excited about it because they're getting their book published for real and they're going to do all the marketing for the fucking publishing company because they're excited over this $5,000, which they really deserve far more. The artists aren't being compensated properly. Mm. They were compensated properly and maybe a little extra because there was a lot of excess floating around in the 80s and horror authors weren't immune to that. You take a look at this house and this camera equipment and yeah, definitely mid-80s horror author, rock star horror author mm. could 
easily afford this. It was maybe not pocket change, but pretty close. All this camera equipment. Oh my God. Yeah, he could totally afford it because this is riffing on the whole like Stephen King sort of thing. This Dean Koontz sort of thing. This Peter Straub sort of thing. And thinking about some of the authors that were also Vietnam vets at that time, writing books like Coco, which isn't necessarily a horror book, but it's sort of like a departure from the horror thanks to these sort of memories coming out. So I think they're really riffing on that, but they've got it really right as far as people lining up at the signing, him having this massive house and money not even being mentioned, having all this camera equipment, things like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes and no. (laughs) Yes, a fucking horror author could have definitely easily afforded all that camera equipment. Nowadays, not so much, but there are still those rare exceptions. Our rock stars of horror lit, Mm -hmm. as it were, that definitely make great money and the advances are well worth it. They're maybe not as compensated as they used to be, though. But at the time, yes, accurate. I think that the scene at the the, uh, of an author signing... uh, is great because not only does it provide a lot of exposition, we find out a lot about Roger from his fans basically saying things about him, which I guess I could bite on not being really realistic, but no, I've been around enough famous people at conventions and shit like that where you see fans interact with them and the fans basically, like really diehard fans will talk to their heroes by parroting back trivia about themselves to you. Where it's almost like, did you know that you're married to a famous person? It's kind of like that. Um, We find out that, you know, Roger is a Vietnam vet. We find out that that's going to be the subject of his next book. Now, we also find out that he is married to an actress, but or he was. He has been uh, divorced. And we also get a sense from his fan base that they don't seem to be too jazzed on the fact about his next book. They seem to... It would be if you said, oh, Stephen King's coming out with another book. Everyone's super excited. Oh, it's about his experiences. I don't know. Fly fishing. Fly fishing. (laughs) And everyone's kind of like, huh, I understand. This is not what I expected. So and none more so annoyed by his next creative endeavor than his own agent. And that's what I was really curious about is like this sort of huckster agent that just really wants him to make the deal and make like the biggest thing possible. And you being around a lot of people like this is, is like that fairly accurate or somewhat accurate. Yeah, there's definitely agents that behave exactly like that and think like that. Agents do definitely think about bottom dollar. They're business people. Yeah, definitely. But there are also agents that, you know, march to the beat of a different drum, as it were. And they're more interested in the art and more interested in seeing artists compensated fairly and seeing artists be comfortable. And then there's agents that just want, you know, work prolific. They want it every like month or six months, like clockwork, you know, appease the fans and bring in the money. Uh, Yeah, there's definitely agents that are like that. And there's definitely fans that get displeased when authors or artists do something else that they want to do, whether it be a passion project or something they just feel they need to do or something that their agent is telling them to do. Like, yeah. Um, In this case, it's something that no one else wants him to do, it seems, but he needs to write this story. And it seems to be like a passion project of his, this autobiography, as it were. I think that's what it's going to be like. I think think so. From his descriptions and from the snippets that we do get of him writing, it definitely seems to be 
his experiences his, in the autobiographical. Vietnam War. Yeah. I think that he he's he's not really pulling any punches. He's saying this is exactly what happens, and we know as the audience that this is exactly what happened, especially by the end of the film. So I think it's going to be something like that. I don't know if he's going to do uh, with like some maybe narrative like tangential narrative threads that are just to boost up the drama a little bit because not reality doesn't always make for the best storytelling mm, yeah like sort of like million little pieces was like um, a true story with stuff woven into it yeah that was exactly yeah I, I like i kind of prefer those on one hand i do agree with the fans because you know i want to read about nick cutter's horror stories i don't want to read about his real life adventure so i'm really glad he has like a pseudonym so mm-hmm. he can write all of his nick cutter horror stuff and then do whatever the fuck he wants to do under his real name mm-hmm. and write about whatever he wants but then on the other hand i'm like fuck you when you really like an author you want to read about all this stuff you want to read about where this horror is coming from right so yeah. i'd want to read this person's vietnam war experiences just like i want to read about nick cutter's like wrestling experiences or whatever <laughs> He, he was going to write about next. <laughs> no, I really agree with you on that one. I think that, yes, when you are really into a certain type of fiction, you want that type of fiction. And if there's a particular writer that you like that writes that at all well in your estimation, you want more of that. But if that changes to the fact that, oh, I really like this author, then would you not want to know what fueled your imagination, what what started this chain of events when did this person change and say my writing is going to be about these things and if you're talking about a vietnam vet and someone who has had a particularly bad experience in that war i mean war is always going to be hell but i mean some people will take that horrible experience and they're going to turn it into art and if it's like it's just very interesting to see where that comes from and to get us like i would love some of my favorite writers i would love to to read uh about some deeply personal stuff that happened to them especially if it was tragic especially if they're writing horror because this is going to teach me about their lives and where they're coming from creatively speaking because sometimes when i read something that i really like or i watch something that i really like i'm always like where did that come from where did that come from because it it came from an amazing place yeah even if it's really dark one of those fucking authors like there's nothing worse to me than a rock star horror author that writes the most grotesque like gut punch shit that i've ever read in my life and you read their bio and it's like john lives in port hope with his three cats and lovely wife well you just wait until you read fiction written by the fucking middle class white guy who grew up in ottawa (laughs) had nothing going wrong quite but yeah this guy does have a story to tell and he's going to write it regardless and it's nice that he has this entire house at his disposal because his aunt has passed away he's taking over the house whether his realtor thinks he should make money off of it or not Mm -hmm. so he's going to have this whole space of his own to write whatever he wants Mm -hmm. and let me ask you this since we're dealing with an author and i'm sitting across from one um, this guy very much wants to use this house as an opportunity to isolate himself and to create. And you have written quite a few things in your lifetime and you're currently writing something now, uh, which I can't wait for. And so do you find it helpful to isolate yourself like this? Do you need to go on retreats? I don't know why I said that with an accent. Retreats? Do you need to, or is, are you fine with sort of dipping in and out of normal life? 
Sort of, yeah, no. Like, I'd like to be able to just seclude myself forever and ever and write all the time, but yeah. that's not really, like, doable. But I have been writing for a half an hour every single day and doing about a thousand words consistently, which is awesome. And that's, like, my favorite place to be because you can just turn it off and on when you are, like, good at writing and know how to get into that headspace and have something that you're currently working on or ideas that you need to get out. It's a lot. It's really easy because you're just going to ignore all the things that distract you or tell them to fuck off anyway. So like that's easy for small snippets of time wherever you may be. Um, but the end of Night Face 1 was written in two weeks and all the editing, like the final draft was all done over two weeks of basic seclusion at my parents house where I had no work to answer to nothing like two weeks of nothing and I'm actually looking forward to the, this coming holiday Monday to do the same thing with night face too but yeah it's it's really 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 helpful mm -hmm. I will say that um from what I know about night face one seeing as I read it I was like I could that that period that I can imagine the parts of the book that you wrote in complete isolation has some of your strongest work that I've ever seen it's really, really cool. There's there's one passage that I always like think about all the time and it's like fucking so beautiful. Anyway. Aw. <laughs> I know what scene it is. We've talked about it. Yeah. yeah. And near the end it's sort of like yeah. and it's almost got a sleeping beauty, um it's so, Prince like, Charming coming to rescue yeah. Sleeping Beauty sort of thing. Oh my and it and it ends so tragically. And I'm not trying to be like coy with, with our listeners or anything like that, but I just like I'm I am not I would not unless I had it in front of my face, I would not do it justice. Rest assured it's beautiful, this scene. I read, but I also wrote what I think is my actual strongest writing that has the same sort of feeling when people read it uh, over three hours at a bridgehead with like annoying, <laughs> so this annoying dude actually walked up to me with my notebook and you've seen my notebook. It's just like covered with spider scrawl of fucking pencil writing and like tight, like line after line of just writing and writing and writing. And this guy comes over, he's like, oh, what are you doing writing a book? And I looked at him with the shittiest look ever and I was like, yeah, I am. <laughs> and if you couldn't get any more Jack Torrance, you know, <laughs> it means I'm working. Yeah. And he <laughs> shrunk away <laughs> like you would. Oh, my God. He scurried away. He back crawled. You know, he crab walked away from me. I swear to God. Oh, I find, uh, good. <laughs> People like that. Look at the fuck. What was his best case scenario for coming up to a stranger like that? I don't know what the fuck you want me to read him in my poetry and we can fucking go on a date after and have some fucking cheesecake. I don't know. I don't I don't fucking know what that it is. That would after be that. the best case scenario though, wouldn't it? It's it's like, yes, I am writing. Let me tell you about my writing. Let's go on a date. Here are my breasts. Like that's I like is you that You play like, guitar? You play guitar. <laughs> oh. No, instead he got like death stare and his, probably a gypsy curse. Yeah, throw his steep tea in your in his face. I wouldn't drink steep tea. No, his steep tea. Oh, okay. Throw his steep tea in his face. That would have been the next move if he hadn't crab walked out of there. <laughs> like, really? <laughs> Fuck that guy. Uh, I know for me, uh, being isolated while I'm writing can kind of help or hurt. I, I, I don't have a very lively home anyways, so it's not that difficult for me to be isolated. But I think uh, when I was writing my very first... Uh, ghost story which was a comic book series um that may one day see the light of day but who knows uh, i hope so uh, I, I want to <laughs> when when i was trying to get to i was stuck on certain scenes because i was thinking this isn't scary enough 
my characters aren't reacting to fear. I'm reacting to how I think scared characters should react to. I needed to be in a place that can make me incredibly fearful at times. I went up to my cottage, which is a place that I've been going up to since I was two weeks old. And so people are like, well, it's like a second home. It is, except for the fact that I was going up there by myself. I'd never done that before. Um, and I uh, and I don't really like being by myself for an extended period of time. In the woods. In the woods. In which, the dark. In the dark, in the woods. And that is, like Lydia knows for sure, and I think any of the listeners that follow the show long enough know, I get really wigged out in the woods sometimes. So I'm sitting there just lanterns lighting my 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 cabin and I'm trying to write these scenes and of course like it's just I'm so nerve-wracked and, and like I'm looking around and and you try to imagine yourself as a person who's got a 21st century brain and you're logical and you don't believe in ghosts but still you're so afraid of seeing something unnatural in the woods and if you were to put me in the daytime and put me back in the city I'd be like of course there's no such thing as that that's absolutely ridiculous but in those moments of extreme fear, you're not making any sense. And all you're trying to do is explain what you're afraid of. And since what you're afraid of is something that you can't quantify, you just make up something weird. And so the, so I found that place in the writing that I needed to find it, but I could only do that. I could never imagine finding that place, flexing that muscle in any other place on earth than that cottage at that time. Which is brilliant. I'm so glad you have that place at your disposal, let alone the ghost stories surrounding that area. That's another thing. I was like, like this this cottage, my cottage is on a lake. This lake has a notoriously haunted house on it that everyone in the lake has a story. I have a story about this house. So it like, it, 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 it's like elicits so much imagination and just being near it makes me so happy. And also, even right now, thinking about this house on this lake, like my hair is like it's sticking up. I got to like... see this place. Actually, I'd love to see this. You apparently have a giant taxidermied fish there. So <laughs> it's another like house reference now to me. I think that's brilliant because the fish is actually one of the things that creep me out the most about oh. this fucking movie. For like dumb reasons. I don't, I don't really know. Yeah. But yeah. Of all the gory effects in this and weird creature designs, the fish freaked me out. The only thing that would make it more crazy, and I've been thinking about this a lot lately, I want to spend a night in this house, like at the cottage, this haunted place. I, 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 was, I was seriously thinking about it. I was like, what? Do I have to sign something? Do I just tell the people? Like, can I just spend one night in here? Because it's owned. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, just find the owners. You'll have to just do a little bit of like legwork and find who owns it. Yeah. Um, I don't know if they've, if it's that haunted, they probably had requests like that before. They might just turn them all down. But if you could appeal them, appeal to them like you appeal to me right now where I'm thinking, you're just adorable. Yeah, here's the keys, little guy. Lock up when you're done. <laughs> yeah. I was like, there's only like, I mean, when you're a kid at the cottage in the middle of the night and a guy at three o'clock in the morning bursts into your home white as a sheet, sweating profusely, refuse to go home because this is the original, this is the owner that owned the house when we were kids. Like you can't help but think that there's something there. There has to be something there. This stranger is now in our home and we won't go home. And because he saw something at this cottage, at this house, I was like, oh my God, just, oh, I get you so excited. Yeah, that's awesome. Anyways. That doesn't happen in house. He stays in his house. His neighbor comes over. He doesn't go running to his neighbors. I wonder why. That's I think, so do you think that he's aware? Do you think that he has a history of seeing things? 
he very well could, but then you pose a question while we're watching this of why could his aunt live there all her life with these spirits, quite obviously, because she's creating art that's showing that she was seeing these ghosts. And she yes. has said that she's seen these creatures mm -hmm. and ghosts. So the house was haunted and she lived in it all of her life. Granted, she did hang herself, but <laughs> so there's that lived there till she was very old and he was brought up there. So maybe he's a little more used to them because he saw them when he was a kid, maybe. But she seemed to be very open to it all, where maybe he's a little more close minded or a little more pragmatic or just a little bit more citified. It could be something like that. You talking about the cracks in his psyche, you talking about the fact that he is writing about one of the sources of his post-traumatic stress disorder. I mean, being in Vietnam, he's got, he's had some tragedy. And he's opening life. these cracks himself too. Yeah. He's kind of going back and trying to remember all these things and thinking about his son who like, died in the swimming pool that he now owns. Yeah. That's, that's another crazy aspect of this. Like we talked about the fact that he is divorced. He had, he had a famous actress wife and he's like a rock star horror art, uh, author. And they had a young son named Jimmy. And well, one day when he was playing out in the yard, uh, his boy went missing. Now there's this one moment where Roger goes out to the front of the house in his imagination and he sees a car peel away. And that could be a good indication. This movie plays with you a little bit. This movie is not trying to say for 100% that he's seeing things that are real. What you understand is, is, is like he went to the front of the house, a car peeled away. A uh, car could have easily snatched him in a second and just bolted away. He comes back into the side of the house, goes to the pool, sees his boy drowning, jumps into the water. His boy is not there. And so what? It, what's the logical conclusion? Is the logical conclusion that the car you saw peeled away had your boy in it and you thought you saw him in the pool and jumped in the pool and he wasn't there? Or did was your son in the pool and they vanished into thin air? Who like who's yeah, gonna think? Which one makes more sense? Yeah, like like so obviously the audience is gonna say, well, I, I mean, unless you didn't know that there was like uh, spooks and ghouls and monsters and shit like that in this house, you would just automatically assume, yeah, he's imagining this. They fuck with you. A that or there's times. that third possibility where there was no car, the boy was in the pool, and he died, and now he's the only person that can't see him because he's not coming to grips with the fact that he killed his own son. There's that too. Who knows why his wife left him because they don't really get into that. Mm -hmm. But it's something to do with that. And the loss or death of a child can definitely shatter a family. Absolutely. Goes without it's, saying, but it's, like, it's especially, you know, the, 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 look, how you could keep your relationship together, uh, the death of one of your children. I, I mean, I could understand, but if you have problems in your relationship anyways, and the center just won't hold. Or to it, what extent does the other of them feel responsible or exactly. feel that the other was responsible in any way, shape, or form? Yeah, rightfully or wrongfully, you're dealing with incredibly raw, painful emotions when something like this happens. So yeah. you would excuse anybody for whatever action they would take. Pretty much. You see a bit of that in Pet Cemetery with the yeah, death of Gage. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so he's got all of these things sort of like creeping in on him mm -hmm. in his mind. So maybe these creatures that live in the house, these spirits, have those like cracks to hang on to and pull even further apart. And it's a lot easier for them to drive him fucking crazy and threaten his fucking life, where his aunt seemed to live with them and paint them and for decades, decades. not have any problem and not like she wasn't killed by the ghost. She killed herself. Mm -hmm. But then they also try and talk you into killing yourself, don't they? They do. Yeah. 
Weird ghosts, these ghosts. Funny looking ghosts, kind of Jim Henson's looking ghosts. Jim Henson or like Labyrinth? Or like, did, did Henson do the work on Labyrinth? I can't remember, but... Yeah, it's totally a Labyrinth thing. And that's weird because like while we're watching this, there's a scene that reminds us a lot of Labyrinth. Oh, but yeah. Anyway, so he ends up with this nosy neighbor. Yeah. Thank God. Because in a way, that's one thing a writer doesn't need. You don't need a fucking nosy, intrusive neighbor. But someone with uh, psychological problems or that has been grieving, whether it's the death of his aunt, death of his son, or going through a breakup. A nosy neighbor is kind of cool because that's somebody who will be the canary in the coal mine who will, like, you know, contact other people or keep an ear out for gunshots, which he does both of those things. <laughs> it's played by George Wendt, who's like was massive at this point as Norman Cheers. That would have, like, him being in this film alone would have been a draw. Because people are like, oh, I'm definitely going to see that. He definitely, like, his comedic timing is always on point. Uh, like, not missing a beat. Like, calling this guy's aunt, like, every horrible thing under the sun. And then, that's my aunt. He's like, oh, heart of gold, heart of gold. Like, you know. Just, beautiful woman, too. Beautiful, beautiful woman for her age, you know. Like, but, yeah, he's like the John Goodman of the time. For yeah. sure, huge draw. And it wouldn't have mattered what role he was playing in this. People would have been interested to see it. Same with Bull. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. it's really nice to see him not play a, a bumbling fool, mm-hmm. right? Like the yeah. grown-up moose that he played on yeah. Night Court. As, as, as a kid, as a kid, you know, watching uh, Night Court or uh, even uh, Richard Mole uh, doing the voice of Two-Face on the Batman animated series, these are like, the th- like, so this guy was a massive part of my childhood. Mm-hmm. So it's always great to see him in anything. And he's done a million things. Like, he's just like, one of those character actors that are just everywhere. I and, think this is probably his my favorite role of his for sure easily 100 yeah. percent easily yeah it, it, it's absolutely great now when roger starts the writing process that's when things start to get a little strange now at first it could be easily mistaken as just odd noises in the house or or just like an eerie sensibility he's in a place where his son went missing he's in a place where his aunt who raised him died uh the, you know and he's digging into some very unpleasant memories going to be writing about vietnam so you can get his his weird sense of unease that might be going on throughout the house there's some weird subtle things a car like a toy car sort of rolling around and shit so he's there's those elements to the film too um i mean he's wearing like the deepest v-neck sweater known to man which is terrifying (laughs) you know this movie does get into at first some very like very stock and trade haunted house beats mm-hmm. when he's first discovering that it's haunted and it's being made apparent that there's something ghostly going on here. Um, that V-neck sweater, though, terrifying shit. And I'm <laughs> glad that no one else ever, ever pulls that trick on us as I wa- a viewer. I wanted to pull him aside and just be like, dog, that's not a sweater that you're supposed to wear by itself. You're supposed to have like a button-up shirt under that or something. You can't just wear that sweater. When a, when a very fit gentleman turns to the side and you get side boob, yeah. then your v-neck is too low. Oh my god. I mean, I wouldn't mind wearing that. That'd be kind of sexy, but like... No, it stop just traffic with you. I would, I would, would want it longer to be a sweater dress at that point, because it almost <laughs> could be a sweater dress on this guy. But... This movie does like hit these haunted house things, but it becomes very much its own very soon in because he knows that there's something creepy going on in this house. It's haunted to a certain extent. His mind is slipping and he's not really sure where those two things overlap. He's watching one of my pet horror movies that's used in the book trailer for Night Face on YouTube. You can find that on YouTube. 
Um, Don't Look in the Basement. He's mm-hmm. watching that. Don't Look in the Basement 2 just came out, and I really Ooh. enjoyed both of those movies back-to-back. The first one is really its own little beast, but he's watching that on TV, and he's, like, tired of watching creepy films, I guess, at the moment because he's feeling a little creeped out and a little frustrated with his writing, too. So he grabs the remote and turns it off, and then he sees the ghost of his son in the window talking to him, and he points the remote at his son and turns him off. He's like, ah, hallucination, off you go. Yeah. That's pretty fucking... I wish it were that easy. It's pretty funny. Yeah, I know, right? It's pretty fucking crazy. One of those things, though, that make this house very much its own, it's haunting. And then it goes on from there and becomes very unique as far as hauntings go. This movie become goes from, you know, lighting and, and sound to full-blown special effects. We are in the 1980s. This is the decade of doing this type of shit. He eventually goes up to his closet door and the first big thing, the first unmistakable, holy fuck, what is happening in this house moment is an unforgettable creature. A monster in a closet. And at its simplest, but holy fuck. This thing looks amazing. I love this creature. This thing, like, if you guys are familiar with, uh, like, Hellraiser, it's kind of like that creature with the two heads, except it doesn't have two heads. And it's got, like, a skeletal. It's got faces on the side of it. It's, it's very got, xenomorph-inspired, yeah, but twisted. reminds me There's, a lot of the Navigators from Dune. Like, it's yeah. creepy. It's slimy. It is coming the fuck at you. It's got, like, oh, it's like these gnarled claws. Like, really nasty-looking fucking claws. Like Another thing it reminds me a lot of for lit fans is uh, the hounds of tendalos which aren't mm. necessarily described in print either but if i had to envision one fuck my life this is what those creepy beasts would look like oh yeah absolutely yeah horrible scary and terrifying he doesn't he reacts but not like i don't know i'd probably just shit my fucking pants it's weird because his reactions definitely don't seem i almost feel like his reactions aren't appropriate to how fucking horrific this thing looks. No. Right? It's weird enough if anything came out of that closet that you weren't expecting, but something that looks so evil and hateful and twisted and wrong, right? It, it, and, and and predatory because it's oh coming at him. Oh, my God. Because, like, believe me, as this thing gets its hold of you, it doesn't want to be friends. <laughs> I love that he slams the door and opens it again and it's a closet. It's, it's just gone. a closet. It's fucked up and it's super twisted. Um, it's a great scene. It's a great way to sort of kick you in the balls and say, this is what we're doing. Yeah. He didn't open it and see like a ghostly being. Oh. Yeah. No, it was it this that. fucking creature that was straight out of six of our favorite horror films. Yeah. What the fuck? <laughs> I know. Yeah. It's fucking crazy. Now, at this point, this is where Roger's starting to get pretty high strung. Now, one of the interesting things about this flick, and, and any time that a movie sort of does this, I'm always uh, uh, impressed by the acting, is just because a lot of this movie really rests on his shoulders. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, uh, George Went has, it probably has like the second most screen time of any other character, but he is definitely meant to be doing a lot of this work by himself. Like, he, like he's constantly reacting to these things, um and then he's he's the one acting the strangest to everyone else's deadpan of trying to act normal trying to figure out what's wrong with him or trying to make sure everything's okay and he's like a cartoon character just like completely off the wall bug-eyed stressed out trying to like i'm normal everything's fine this is fine 
I'm fine. What? Huh? Yeah. Yeah. And and so his energy is at 11 through the entire fucking, from this point on, his energy is at 11. Because this is where he's buying all that camera equipment. He's dressed in his army fatigues. He's, he's like tuck and rolling through the fucking hallway. Which is fucking crazy when he's pulling drills, basically, to make sure he could uh, capture proof of this monster and escape. And he comes sliding on his knees out of his front door after, like, escaping during his drill. Doing, like, the fucking p- the poster for Platoon. Like, Basically. <laughs> and his neighbor's just like, okay, uh, how's it going? Yeah, his neighbor just sitting there with his dog, just like, hey, what you doing? <laughs> nothing. <laughs> nothing. It's like, you're not doing nothing, dog. You're doing something. You're doing something weird. Yeah. Make something up. Have a better lie. See, all the comedy in this is like dark comedy. It's all very subtle comedy. You likened it to the burbs. And I find it even less comedic than that because they're trying too fucking hard in the burbs. It all comes very much more naturally, I think, in house. Mm -hmm. For somebody who's got like post-traumatic stress disorder that everyone's laughing at. (laughs) I I find that George uh, uh, Wen's character has a, a little bit of an ulterior motive. He seems to be enamored with the fact that his ex-wife is this famous celebrity. He's also a huge fan of his writing because he happened to have a copy of his last book in his pocket that like, was so it, worn it had no cover or spine. It was just like a stack of pages and he wanted them to crazy. sign <laughs> Very crazy. It's crazy. But like, like who does that? Like, this is weird. And, like he has that just on hand? Guess he liked that book a lot. He's like, here's here's my <laughs> here's your loose novel in my pocket. <laughs> I'm your number one fan. I'm going to make sure you write that next book. You know, like, yeah. Yeah. Very good yeah. when you think about like, it. Do you think in another life he is the woman from Misery? Could very well be. <laughs> he is. But at like, on the other hand, like I said, he's it's helpful at this time. Not so much for getting the fucking book written, but helpful because of what he's going through emotionally and mentally, right? He, he does. And it's kind of cool that he now has something he needs to prove this monster is there and it's not just in his own mind. So now he's going to have a witness kind of built in next door. Mm-hmm. Now he does. Uh, his neighbor um, is going to make himself right at home. He's going to come over, bring food, and uh, he's going to talk to him about seeing a ghost and that he's trying to get a picture of it. And I feel it's like, like on the surface, his neighbor is like, oh, yeah, have you ever seen a picture of a ghost? Um, I'd like to see it because uh, I've never seen one before. And he seems to be somewhat dismissive, but also kind of letting him talk. And, and you not really know, know what his motivation is. That's where he swipes the phone book. Well, he's entertaining this whole notion because Roger straight up asks him, like, if my aunt was Looney Tunes. This post was haunted according to her and according to you. She was fucking Looney Tunes. Am I Looney Tunes? And he's like, no, 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 no. You're perfectly fine. But then, yeah, swipes the phone book and is keeping an eye on him. Yeah. Calls his, uh, calls his ex-wife up and says that something's going on. He's like, see, he's talking about seeing ghosts and seeing things. And he seems really off. And uh, just you should worried. check up on him. You should him. check up, check yeah. up on him. Um, she agrees to do that or says that she might. And... But she can't right away because she's busy. Yeah. But the next day, shit is going on in that house. Absolutely. Everything ramps up. And I like that it ramps up at the pace that it does. I would hate um, I would hate if the, if, the, if the movie went any slower. They get into the action pretty uh, pretty quickly because that's what we're here for for a movie like One this. One of my favorites still is that stupid Marlin. <laughs> you know, his aunt's, uh, his uncle uh, like had the record on that Marlin for like two years. Fascinating. It comes to life, Wes. <laughs> I don't know what it is about that 
fucking Marlin. The way its eye rolls around, the horrible mewling sound that makes as it's dying. Oh my god. He shoots that fucking stuffed fish. Well, what would you do? It's not one of those, like, don't worry, be happy, happy bass, bobby bass, or whatever, on a fake placard or whatever that flops around because you turned the on switch on. I seemed really compelled to stab it in the eye, because as long as it's not looking at me, I'm fine. It's got a big eye. Yeah. Big, creepy, rolly, gross eye. It does. Man, you had talked about this this scene freaking you out as a little kid. And I believe it because I was like, really? Just shooting that fish? Why? The noise that thing makes when it fucking gets shot is disgusting. <laughs> it kind of is. Oh it sounds God. like a baby getting stepped on. So, yeah. I was also surrounded by a lot of like taxidermy fish at my cousin's house, too. So, mm-hmm. ugh. And my dentist had that exact same fish on his wall. Ugh. But, yeah. So, he shoots this fish, which, of course, sends his neighbor... Running not to help him, but running to the phone to call the police. Yeah, and it was weird because I, when you first watch this movie, you might think, oh, he's probably going to call his ex-wife because he said that he would if anything happened. And But nope, that is not the situation at all. He's going to call the police. A gunfire, a gunshot just went off. He thought that he'd committed suicide. Yeah. That's what oh, he thought. Oh, but um, that shot wasn't what tipped him off. Because right when he's, ho- uh, right when... He's still holding the 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 gun. His ex wife shows up, and her reaction is just, "Hi, I'm just here to check on you." Eyes lower to the gun. What you got the gun for? And we think everything's fine. This would make sense narratively speaking. She was told about the situation. She did show up, concerned about him. This is why she showed up. And then she dips below the table to pick up some shells. And then comes back up and she is this disgusting, bloated, but still wearing that dress, which is really funny. It's sort of like Madame Trash Heap from Fraggle Rock or something. Yeah. I don't know. Or like just any of the weirdest, absolute weirdest Jim Henson creature you could ever envision. Nasty looking teeth. Just like real fucking gross looking thing. Sort of, I guess, the mom from Dead Alive. Yeah. At her most zombie. At her most zombie. Maybe not her most giant, but like, holy fuck. This thing looks fucking disgusting. And and again, we're going back to the fact that the creatures in this movie are really fucking dark looking. Really yeah. fucking dark. Now, there is the added comedy about the fact that like, she is in a very pretty dress and she has got like blonde hair and looks all fucking bloated and disgusting around that. Kind There's a of. little bit of slapstick involved in their, in oh, their for chase. Sure. And because there is a chase throughout the entire house. Meanwhile, he's also been like running away from like floating garden tools. Garden tools, which, by the way, there is a painting on the wall about floating garden tools attacking a naked woman's body. Um, the artwork among this house. Every, every time we've mentioned this house and the artwork, I've been sort of like holding off until we got into some of the things that are attacking him. Uh, almost all of the things that go wrong to him from this house are in the paintings in the wall. Um, and I, I really enjoy the artwork in the sense. One of those things that I didn't notice as a kid or it didn't stick oh, with no. me. Yeah. But now I want all those paintings. Oh my God. I, 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 I posit that like Sean Cunningham, I bet you has a bunch of those paintings still. I'd like to think so. But then part of me is all like, well, they were just set dressing. They were probably like scanned from some other artist that I'll have to like figure out who the artist was. And they were just like, like prints and they framed the prints and then they end up in a warehouse forgotten. Who knows? Or they could have been custom. I don't know. Who knows? Um, either way, even the cops later, one of them's like looking at this artwork and he's just like, uh, yeah, 
Like he's about he's an inch away from being like, what the fuck is this shit? Even like scenes later, the cops are in the house and they're looking at this these paintings, and he's like, yeah, my aunt used to paint. And the look he's giving the painting is just he's an inch away from being like, what the fuck is this shit? Yeah, because it's pretty fucked up. Yeah. When this demon thing monster gets shot, keels over, you think that's the end of it, but it's not. Oh, no. These things uh, can take a licking and keep on ticking. It's not until he basically does the runaround and this thing gets impaled and then decapitated by all the garden tools. Yeah, the house pits itself against itself in a way, I guess. Yeah, there. it's weird. I feel like I feel like it's basically just like, well, when we learn really what the house is, what it really is, you could understand that, okay, these things aren't in league with each other. This house is essentially a gateway to a place Full of these things. Yeah, they seem to just seep through and get into these cracks and do things that speak to the person they're trying to affect mm-hmm. for whatever reason. I guess the same way, reason that the Lasser glass attacks people in Oculus. Because it can, because it's bored, because it's there, because you're there. Who knows? Mm-hmm. The decapitation of that um, beast, because I don't know, like I want to call it a ghost because it's sort of like a ghost because it's haunting. But it is like a creature. The decapitation of that creature is pretty hilarious. The decapitation is very slapstick because it definitely has like that cartoonish like zoinks. My head head just got cut off if that were to happen in Scooby-Doo. There is like you had mentioned when we were watching this that the the tone shifts like fucking manic, depressive Mm -hmm. in this. Yeah, it's crazy. And you know what? A lot of that has to do with uh, Harry Manfredini's score. Yeah. Because at some point he's doing synth work and it's just like Friday the 13th. It's like, wee, wee. And then next thing you know, we're in like a Vietnam flashback scene or he's running through the house and it's very triumphant and big and, and uh, bombastic. Huge orchestra. Oh, yeah. And, rolling, and, but then, yeah. And so, it, like, and so the score was like, well, this sounds like an action movie now. Or, or it, it sounds more openly comedic now. Uh, and, and then the scenes themselves is very sitcommy, like, because what this what this is, listeners, what it really is, is it's like like a sitcom, like it's where where one character knows something that no other character knows. It's like and, Jack's date and two girls. Yeah, you yeah, mentioned it, that exactly. It's like Three's it. Company, where it's just characters running from one room to the next um, trying to hide things from other characters trying to because like especially when we're getting into the the realm of of this this uh this hag bloated monster that gets killed and then just won't fucking die then won't die he has to dismantle her he has to cut her apart in a bunch of different pieces bury her in the yard while and like since he shot a shotgun off this creature morphed back into his his ex-wife's body and now we're not even sure if he killed his ex-wife or if this was a legitimate creature puts her underneath the stairs police are showing up he's trying to make sure the police don't go near the door and and so and and he's acting as suspicious as humanly fucking possible he can't like the way he's delivering his lines his body language everything about him is just insane where he's just like no don't go down that way this way what Nothing. I don't know. Say I'll make us some coffee. I'll make yeah. us some coffee. You want some coffee? Like it's that. Yeah. And so and 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 then we go back to like some slower tension scenes later. But when this movie goes for comedy, it's going for it, and it's going for 
what the comedy would have been like in those days on TV and in film. And even to the point that when he's dismantling this body, cutting it apart and burying it in a yard, we get a soundtrack. Yeah. I think the only thing that is missing is the laugh track. Uh, think about <laughs> it. You've cracked this wide open. Wes. Well, thank you. Yeah. It is a sitcom. It is the missing fucking footage of Three's Company. <laughs> we're, we're Jack Tripper killed everybody. <laughs> I would love to see that. The darker version of Three's Company, as it were. Come and knock on my door. Ding dong, you're dead. We got a bludgeon for you. <laughs> Where evil has a home. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm still surprised that I like this, now that you mention how comedic it really truly is. But then they turn a page, and everything's fucking horror again. Mm-hmm. And the fact that like you do have scenes where... Um, for example, when he's burying the body and you have, uh, you know, you're no good playing and it's fucking ridiculous. And then this, uh, woman, this beautiful woman is swimming in his pool. Who's a, who's a neighbor of his. This is where it really strikes me as like the burbs where, where it's just like, he's meeting more of his neighbors and they're fucking caricatures. So he has like the sexy neighbor who is hitting on him immediately. And meanwhile, he's trying to talk to her. And this is where the sitcom thing happens, where it's like, it's like he's like Jack Tripper trying to pick up a lady while there's a body in a bag that's like inching towards her with the hand. I love don't notice the body scenes in movies. Yeah. It's my favorite. Yeah. And um, it's like a funny version of the bomb under the table. Will it go off? Will yeah. they see? And he is just trying to get rid of her because he's. And, and where it, where it's like... And the body's still moving. Like, yeah, he's stepping on the leg yeah. and kicking it, trying to make sure she doesn't look down. These women are very aloof in this film, I but, find. But what they're doing is is also... What, they're doing that technique, that comedy technique of filling in the blanks for the main character to make their lies seem more believable. So what they'll do is like, oh, what's the what do you got under the bag? A sapling? Yes, a sapling. It's an apricot tree. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. Yeah, that's what I'm doing. Where, where it's like in real life, people would probably be like, what do you got there? And wait for your answer and yeah. not try to fill the blanks in for you. Because most people would be like, there could be anything under here, up to and including a body, which, by the way, that looks like. That looks like you have a fucking bloated corpse under there. That's exactly what I would be saying to him, too. And I, that would be my thing. It's like, what you bearing in a body? Yeah. What you bearing in your backyard there, sport? A dead guy? Well, it kind of worked out for Ed Gein because people would be like, oh, I wonder where so-and-so is. And he'd be like, hanging up in my back shed, bleeding out. <laughs> and they'd be like, oh, Ed, you're so weird. Yeah. Babysit my children. <laughs> <laughs> so it worked for him. So I don't know. Yeah. The way that he's acting, though, you're right. It's only at home in a sitcom. Yeah, because it's it's no no police officer. Would would so police officers get called to this guy's house because he fires his gun off at this bloated hag thing that he thinks is his wife, and we're not sure if it is or not. But like the the movie again, the movie fucks with you and is not clear. Is he imagining this? Did he just kill someone, or did the house trick him into doing it? 
Like, here, we're going to make you kill your loved ones. How dark are we going? Which would also explain, so he's got a sapling or something or nothing under that tarp. So, of course, the girl doesn't see the hand inching out or him stomping on it. Yeah. I do like how he beats on it with a shovel the minute her back's turned as hard yeah. as he fucking can. Yeah. I think and, and, and she almost acts like she can't hear that. Yeah. I was like, if someone is wailing on a big hefty bag full of meat... You are gonna hear that. Yeah. You, it, like, but she, when her back is turned, it's like her ears turn off, <laughs> and she's like, "Oh, by the way, <laughs> ridiculous." It is ridiculous. But like, when he loses, he tells the police officers that come to his house for a suicide attempt that he was cleaning his gun, and it went and, off. And it went off, and he's sorry he didn't mean to. The police officers recognize him as a famous author. And then he thinks they want an autograph, but one of them just wants to use the bathroom. He invites them in for coffee. They're fine. As they're leaving, he's like, my gun. Because he loses track of his gun because that thing isn't dead. And then he's like, my gun. And he's like, what? He's like, nothing. He, like, no cop. Any cop would be like, you know what? We're just going to like take you with us for a little yeah. bit. Or like, like, where is your gun? Here's Should, a form like, one. Like, where's your... It's like, by the way, this is just... Wouldn't like wouldn't be doing our jobs if we didn't uh, ask. Can we see a permit for that gun? Can we? Where is the gun again? I don't like, know how guns work in the United States. I think everyone just has the, their guns, and I think that it's normal for an American in the '80s to be like, "My gun," and they'd be like, "What?" And be like, "Nothing. I just love my gun." Yeah. I don't know. Maybe he, that's but he normal. Doesn't even, I don't know he doesn't even there. make an attempt to sound believable. No. He makes an attempt to. He says crazy things. He does crazy things. He shouts at people not to go into certain rooms, and he doesn't play it cool at all. And I'm wondering, is that a direction? Because this is not exclusive to him. This is how all these actors always act in these scenes where you're trying to hide something. Like a Leslie Nielsen sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. Um, but like, yeah. I was like, is is it is there a specific direction where deadpan doesn't work? Where you're, are people going to think like, well, he's like coming off as a sociopath because he's got, he just killed something and he's just coming off too calm. It's like, there's nothing over there. Don't worry about it. Where's the bathroom? Bathroom? Yeah, just over there. Don't worry about it. Like, like he has to act like insane. everything, like insane and everyone else's job is to act like someone acting this way isn't fucking crazy. It's just a weird beat to me. But again, not this isn't House's fault. This is literally they're they're what they're doing is they're following the formula. All sitcom. That that, that they just do zillions this. of movies at the time. Yeah, this yeah. is just how they did it. Not unlike, except like with the John Hughes movie, and you would liken this to John Hughes because using that song they use while he's burying the body is one of the steps away from the score they take that I wish they wouldn't because I don't like it. I don't like it this. either. And there's not enough of it in a way. It's not like they only use two or three songs in this. It, so it's like, yeah, but they're all pop songs or maybe a little older, about 10 years older than they should have yeah. been. Um, but maybe that's another John Hughes thing too. It's possible. I mean, like any, uh, for our listeners, like John Hughes, obviously, you know, Breakfast Club, uh, Pretty in Pink, Pretty in Pink, Sixteen Candles, all that stuff. Home Alone. Uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Ferris Bueller. Those 80s movies that uh, that everyone really knows and, and loves. What John Hughes did for cinema, what he honestly did for cinema, uh, beyond the fact about the, the characters that created that became icons in their own right, is the fact that it was his idea really that, that made it popular to put contemporary music into films and not just have a score. And, and so I, I was looking at this, I was like, you know... This movie came out in 1986. Breakfast Club came out in 1985. So I'm wondering if... And score can be added at any time. Yeah. So I was wondering if the 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 really bizarre additions of two songs 
what was a response to that that we're doing kind of like a john hughes thing i think so too and when i think about it this ferris bueller doesn't act entirely differently no right yeah weird yeah it makes me like house less now that has anything remotely to do with ferris bueller's day off <laughs> how can i watch this horror movie when i don't have a car i hate these fat fucking movies so much <laughs> anyway back to house Far away from John Hughes. Mm-hmm. Um, this fucking creature does not lay to rest. Wes said that he has to cut it up into millions of pieces to get it to die. Mm-hmm. We've seen that in lots of like this weird beast I've created won't die or mm. I've conjured this demon and it won't die. So I got yeah, cut Evil Dead, Return of the Living Dead, like yeah. even uh, fucking movies we've done recently. Fuck, what was the movie we did with this little thing? Reanimator. Yeah. Like th- these types of things. Yeah. I like I like that sort of idea in films. Uh, if this guy had ever seen a horror movie, he'd know what to do. And he'd know that this thing was going to just come and terrorize him for another week or so. Uh, of course it does. It terrorizes him as long as well as his fucking neighbors. I'm already sick of his fucking neighbors. The neighbor that was swimming in the pool decides to come by all sexied up and ask him if he's ready for some fun. Yeah, he's just like, you know, I was like, men who want to work. I also know men who want to play. And she comes over and she's like, are you ready to play? She's got a little boy with her. What kind of party is this, Lydia? A babysitting party. This is possibly the most insane thing in the movie. Not because it's so... <laughs> I'm thinking of all the creatures that are pretty fucking insane, especially some at the end that we both really, really like. And this is the most insane thing? This this is the most insane fucking thing. You have, listeners, a woman who met this motherfucker... Less than 24 hours ago. Who was burying a body, or at least it looked like it. He, he, who wasn't exactly friendly and warm with her, who basically told her to fuck off while he buried this thing. She does, she comes back, oh, I'm bringing my son with me. Oh, I'm going out now. Oh, I'm bringing you here to babysit my son and I'm not going to ask you. You're just going to do it. Yeah, here's his sleepover clothes, here's his jam jams, here's his toys for the tub. Like, what the fuck? I don't know why he didn't just shovel that shit, including that brat, back into her fucking arms and, like, boot her out the door. It's what fucking the fuck? It's fucking crazy. Now, this is one of those things where he's trying to, like, play it cool. His kid, or this kid, has a fucking little hand on it. It's got that old hag's hand that he walks in the door with it which is just weird it's crazy did you not see this he doesn't seem too concerned about it now the hand got out of the ground because a little dog again sitcom shit a dog fucking like digs up the hand and runs away with it and then the next time we see it the hand has clawed its way onto this little boy's back but it makes you question is this even really happening how did the mother not notice this on the boy's back how did the boy not notice this because if you know like kids something grabbed their back they're gonna squeal and and like something that has claws like that not like totally lose their shit run to their mother like it makes me question anyway whether at this point as an audience member would i think that he's seeing the stuff or if it's really happening but anyway so the kid brings this goddamn hand of this thing that's buried in his backyard back into the house so he goes chasing after it which is yet another instance of him acting completely outrageous and outlandish and nobody around him behaving like the way he's acting is odd he goes chasing this little boy through the house while telling the mother to not look and stay there like what mom is not gonna 
follow a madman she doesn't know chasing a kid through the house very very fucking strange mm-hmm. but of course she also lets him give him a bath so again and i was like and my question is is like is this only weird because it's 2016 and not 1986 and so my mind goes to all the worst places about you don't trust your neighbors that you just met like this you don't hand your child over to your neighbors like this you People don't didn't hand kids over back then really i don't know like that like... i know i'm not, not no parents i know any parent i know or knew back then. I would have never been handed over to a strange Is neighbor. there nobody in this neighborhood that she possibly could know better than this? Well, she seems like she gets around the neighborhood. So maybe she's like got like, you know, burnt bridges or something with some. Maybe. Because she like swims in random swimming pools and stuff and does these weird things like all of a sudden show up and force you to babysit her kid. And so maybe she's not And Lisa, so she can go out on a date. I'm like, what is this? What do you think this is? Like, no, I'm not looking after your damn child. Yeah. If 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 this was a friend of hers that she that he had known for a few years, I could see that. But this is literally a woman he just met. So this is the weirdest thing in this film. Not the Bobby twins that live in the chimney that eventually steal this child. <laughs> no, the Bobsy twins that that do that. By the way, that's what really reminded us of Labyrinth. Yeah. It really because like this kid is getting pulled around. Because that's the other thing. It's like now. And, and honestly, it's just something that's added to the movie to give a little bit more... Mirth, of, a little in, yeah. visual interest, too, yeah. I think. It's the only kid in the film. Like, a lot of these horror comedies or horrors for children revolve around children. And that's actually a criticism of Stranger Things that I've read about recently. People are sick to death about these kids involved in adventures, which sounds so curmudgeonly. It's, even it is, when I it say is it. curmudgeonly. But it's true. Like, this is one of the few horror films for kids that don't that revolve around kids so i think it's kind of cool in that way a bit of an outlier that way mm-hmm. but this does inject a little bit of a kid granted he's a toddler but he doesn't even seem to care about these things i don't think anything would scare this kid he's just sort of like running through the place laughing a lot like the little baby in labyrinth yeah. where all these like really actually scary things are going on around him yeah he's, he's getting tossed around between things like people are throwing that kid around in yeah. labyrinth and he's stolen away from his parents or anyone he knows this kid's in a strange house with a stranger and just sort of like giggling and laughing and playing it's so bizarre it is bizarre Especially with these two very monstrous looking creatures. Oh, bug, saucer eyed and shit. Like, it's crazy. Yeah. They are terrifying looking. And they're dragging him up a chimney and he's giggling. Yeah. Like, what? Well, 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 an adult is like pulling on his legs. Like, he's getting pulled between two people, uh, yeah. three people. And he's just like, ha ha ha, isn't this funny? I guess it's like, if he was crying, would it be too horrific? Would we be like feeling too bad for the kid? Is that what the situation is? I wish he was crying. It would make more sense to me if he was crying. I see. I want a dark version of this where this kid is fucking screaming. Where he's just bisected by people trying to pull him apart. That's what would happen to a little person like that if you were yarding on him like that. Pretty much. Pretty much. Because they pull a full grown man up that chimney along with that kid who's anchoring himself. Mm Mm-hmm. With his feet on the edge of the fucking fireplace, trying to pull the kid back to safety. So yeah, they definitely would have uh, caused him. He would have been drawn and quartered, as it were. Mm-hmm. Wonderful stuff, Wes. You should rewrite this. Maybe you, I will. You and Fred Decker. Man, me and Fred Decker could be pals. That'd be great. That'd be awesome. I would so watch the fuck out of this if it was 
totally suck every little ounce of comedy out of it. All the Three's Company, gone. Yeah, I would like this a lot. I love it, but I mean, I would really like it then. Uh, throughout this film, as we're getting to these scenes, like by the time uh, I guess Roger's lady friend comes back, the, the boy's fine. He's just been chilling. He's been chilling. Everything's fine again. We're like, meanwhile, um, and, and she's gone. And so my 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 point, my whole idea is like, yeah, this is just to insert a little bit more drama and comedy and like slapstick shit into this not slapstick i don't mean that in a shitty way but it's just to insert more stuff for him to do because otherwise it really would just be him constantly dealing with the same few uh ghosts and as we know he's getting kind of used to it and so he's becoming a little bit more and he's a he's a uh, proactive guy so he's like going out and he's trying to figure out like how to stop these things sort of and he well, wants like proof and he's got like little booby traps. Mm -hmm. And also like the like he's he's seen images of his son. He knows what happened to this house and his son. And now he definitely has a hundred percent confirmation in his mind that something is going on in this house, which means that his son was taken in his mind. While the whole time he's also reconciling a lot of these Vietnam moments because like and we've kind of been glossing over them, but they do play a large part in the film is the fact that he's constantly going back to his platoon, his troop that he worked, that he was with in Vietnam. One of the people there was uh, Richard Mole's character. Yeah, Ben, who, who was a bit of a bully, yeah, but Big ben was his best friend. Was his best friend. He was a shithead. He was a, he was a roughneck dude. He was tough. But, I mean, they, he did have his back, especially when the shit went down. You know, like, old Big Ben was there to help him out. Um, and we do know that something must have happened something that like very tragic their platoon does get hit and for a while there it seems like they're in pretty fucking dire straits like this bit where we're already we've already called roger's psyche into question is he seeing these ghosts is anyone else seeing these ghosts or could they if they paid any attention mm. is this all happening in his head or not so we're questioning fucking everything there's at one point he's trying to capture this goddamn creature in the closet. He mm -hmm. wants a photo of it. He wants proof of it. So at one point he enlists himself and his neighbor Harold mm -hmm. enlists <laughs> to try and like capture this beast. So he's figured out it comes at fucking midnight. It doesn't, if you open any other time, it's just going to be a closet. So the fucking thing does come out again. So he finally gets the proof that he needs and Harold seeing it. And we finally get sort of a reaction of an actual normal person, not like an army vet who is set to attack or capture this beast or prove that it's alive, who doesn't seem that weirded out by its presence. We get to see a terrified fucking human being witnessing this crazy creature in the closet. After a struggle, he like launches a harpoon at it. So they, they sort of have captured this thing and... Roger's screaming, shoot it again, but that's not how harpoons work, so that doesn't <laughs> help. It starts retreating into the closet with the harpoon attached and the deep-sea fishing rig that they've rigged up to this so that they have, like, a tether between it. It's nice to have another tether between it and the other side, sort of like poltergeist, but mm. it's far more fun in this film, I think. Um, it starts retreating into the closet, this vast darkness that the closet has become, and... With a lot of like screaming and yelling, Roger eventually, sadly, gets tangled up in it and pulled into the closet behind mm -hmm. it. In the closet, where you'd think it would be like hellscape or something, it's not. 
It's mm-hmm. Vietnam. Mm-hmm. They're in the middle of the jungle. And this is the time that the platoon had gotten hit. So we are outside of a shell shock flashback at this point, And we're in the haunting, which also contains his memories of Vietnam. Mm-hmm. But at this point, the house is fucked with him so bad, we think. Or he is so fucked so bad that he has us believing that the house is haunted. Who knows? If this memory is even really real. Mm-hmm. Where Ben after a, a bombing or an ambush or whatever it is that has incapacitated him, he's dying on the floor of the jungle, begging Roger to fucking kill him, which is a place where some people would find themselves in that situation and a really tough thing. And we're thinking, you know, maybe this is exactly why he feels such a burning need to write about his Vietnam experience, not to just be another old dude around the old table talking about what each you know day in uh, in life of a of an of a reserve was like but he had to potentially maybe kill his best friend or chickened out at the last moment where he could have saved his friend from a life of torture who knows if that really happened or not or if this is the house fucking with him mm-hmm and it was a really good scene. I, I was like, um, uh, Richard Mole's performance in the scene is really, really good because he was like this big, tough, big Ben guy the whole time. And then now he's just like in excruciating pain and he wants him to kill him. Begging him to kill him. Begging him to kill him. And uh, Roger pulls out that knife and is going to run it across his throat. And you're like, holy fuck. <laughs> and he has the, like the acting in the scene is great. We have... Um, William Cat coming from a theater background mm-hmm. and having what ten to fifteen years at this point on screen and having been in like horror film, so he's doing this scene that's straight out of the best war movie you've ever seen, where he's got his Bowie knife right up against the jugular of his best friend and he's struggling and his friend is screaming at him and in pain like it's a beautiful fucking scene. But then you're sort of remembering like he was dragged in here by. A fucking xenomorph navigator weird creature of mm-hmm. some sort. This isn't even Vietnam. Yeah. This is all the haunting or it's all in his head. This is a million miles away and years later. Yeah. Or did this actually happen and this is just a flashback? It's true. And that part this part of the film is not exactly clear to me, but I think what you need to understand, like any audience, not just you, needs to understand is like what you like this I absolutely believe has happened. Me too. So, so uh, whether it's happening again or he's just remembering it, and, and, like it's not really relevant. What you need to know is the history of these two men ended here, and with his friend being dragged off into the jungle for who knows what yeah. sort of torture that awaited him. Mm-hmm. They tortured him for days. I like to think cannibalism, maybe. Yeah. Uh, but apparently, he was tortured for days yeah. before they finally killed him, and he resigned his best friend to that fate. Because he couldn't find it within himself to kill his friend. Sparing him that fate. It was really, really cool. He eventually, while he's back there, um, he eventually finds his way back out. And his neighbor is just like, fucking like just plowed a bottle of Jack Daniels. And he like unceremoniously plows out of the perfectly normal closet. Which has got to be fucked up. Like George Wendt's character didn't really believe him sort of was just hoping for the best so maybe he'd get through this and this like bad flashbacks would go away but he saw him dragged into the closet for god knows how long Mm. for by this fucking beast that should not exist so he basically sat there and drank and waited just 
totally unbelieving, not knowing what else to do. And then all of a sudden the guy comes tumbling out of the jungle <laughs> slash the closet. Like, I, I love that scene, actually. I love that setup for now you're finally convinced that shit is fucked up in this house. When um, he puts his now completely inebriated neighbor to bed in another room, he finally has cracked the code. He looks at one of the paintings and he understands that it's a, it's a picture of his aunt. It's a picture of his aunt standing in front of a doorway. There's a grandfather clock. Or no, it's a, it's a big clock. It's a big pen. Is it literally? No, it's the grandfather clock that's downstairs. Right. It's the, it's the grandfather clock set to midnight. And then when he pulls a, a towel away, hidden, obscured from that painting this whole time, was a little boy screaming in the bathroom mirror. He knows now that a way in can be the bathroom mirror. And so he goes up to the bathroom, opens the mirror. It's it's a plain old bathroom mirror. We've already seen this bathroom mirror a couple times. Yeah. We know that it's a bathroom mirror, but He yes. smashes the glass and now he has permanently opened a gateway to this place. And he's going to crawl through there, rappel down. And this time, but not before, he's like, like all these arms and tentacles and crazy fucking monsters just like start ripping out of the glass and shit. It's really crazy. I love the... I love all the different arms that they have made for this scene. I, I I think that it was probably the creature effects guys were probably given carte blanche to just like, we got this scene. It's going to be a whole like monsters are coming out of it. Just kind of whatever you want to do. We're kind of thinking of those monsters like this. So sort of like there is a lot of character sketching. There is a lot of R&D put behind all of these creatures. Yeah, for sure. Months. But they do all look very different, too. Yeah. So yeah. it wasn't like they were like, this is the universe. Stay within these rules. It was just sort of like, we need these creatures. Do it that well. Yeah. This one's big. This one's green. This one's pink. This is just like a bony tentacle. Like, it could be anything, right? Yeah. More hounds of Tendalus, I think. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's creepy, whatever it is. And I wouldn't go in that fucking mirror. Yeah. But... When he he go- is a Vietnam vet that's going to save his son, I suppose. Yeah, he he definitely feels resigned. He's going to go get his boy. And his boy is in, like, an old bamboo, like, prisoner, like, a cage thing. Yeah. It's so, like, keeping with the theme of, like, the Vietnam War, I guess. He eventually does get his boy out. And I guess all is well? Oh, wait, yeah. His friend. Yeah. Because you can't go like into the past in a haunted house through a portal that's obviously populated by hellish demons without like resurrecting your old buddy. This is probably one of my most favorite sequences in this entire film. This is one of my favorite um, creatures in any One of my film. favorite monsters for sure. And and honestly, it's a beautiful bit of storytelling. The, the ghosts of Roger's past that has been haunting him since it happened and throughout the entire narrative of this film has now manifested itself in front of him as the absolute best type of enemy, not an enemy that is just visually terrifying, but one that is going to admonish you and remind you about your mistake, because that is what he is. He is a representation of one of the biggest regrets of Roger's life. He's a revenge ghost come to life in contemporary American society linked to something that was culturally devastating and culturally embarrassing the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. So having this be the zombie type creature that's coming is not just as scary 
as whatever hand on the front cover was doing ding dong you're dead yeah it's not just a random zombie it's a zombie that knows you yeah that's 10 times more terrifying mm-hmm. i mean it's you know you have like like uh richard mole's frame is so intimidating and even if it's him or not like they have to make sure that he uh like the, the it it represents him in death as he did in life so it's huge and uh, because richard mole is huge and like the 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 army fatigues all rotten away against the body with the exposed ribs and clinging like, flesh. Oh my god! Like it's fucking amazing. The way his face looks so skeletal. Yeah. But so big and imposing. He's big and imposing, but oh, yeah. skeletal at the same time. It's the same sort of visual tricks that they use in the design of the zombies from The Walking Dead. Oh yeah. They had some very slim people. Michael Kosky is one of the yeah. more popular actors to play most, not most, but a lot of the fucking the everyone's stand, favorite zombies. The standout uh, zombies in that show are typically dedicated to him because you can get a really skeletal looking. Yeah, because he's super up slim dude, and he just wears the zombie makeup so very fucking well, and they can paint him up however they like. So they've painted up Richard Mall like this huge, massive fucking tree person, <laughs> as one of the most iconic zombie type creatures I've ever seen. I keep getting like ideas of mumminess. There, about- there is, there is a little bit of that, and, and I think it comes from the fact that, um, typically speaking, when you're looking at, a, at an undead, what you are looking at, uh, and they were, and and they talk about this in movies and books and stuff like that, and vampires too, but mostly with. Um, with zombies you're not looking at your friend anymore you're looking at whatever killed them you're looking at the disease that has infected their body and has animated them they don't know you from anything mm-hmm. and uh, i mean I, I understand that there's been zombie literature and films out there that have explored the uh recollection of the undead like i, I get that but by and large this thing in front of you doesn't know who you are this bends zombie knows who roger is oh yeah has all of his memories intact exactly and and so and has been sitting there thinking about this for decades so angry yeah so fucking angry about what roger in his estimation has done to him you didn't kill me when i told you to kill me which is such a unique it's not that he died he was dead anyways it's that his friend didn't kill him when he asked him to that is extremely unique take on this type of revenge spirit yeah i think and and i can't think of a single other fucking example of an of of a ghost that's like that or 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 a monster or whatever that's like that that's angry that you didn't kill me that's crazy to me and that this is the point in the film where i'm like i i do agree with you it's like if there was only a darker version or fuck it somebody steal that yeah and 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 do something else with it yeah because that we is... could explore post-traumatic stress disorder and horror all over again thanks please do it yeah somebody do it yeah especially with this this look of this undead creature it's so zombie-like, yet so mummy-like, and mm-hmm. it's operating under the guise of some sort of curse, this mm-hmm. revenge take. Mm-hmm. It's, it is extremely unique, and I like to see more of it instead of just, you know, more zombies. Mm-hmm. Because it can't, you can't be so obtuse as to say, well, this is, he, he represents the final, he represents the ultimate tragedy or regret in Roger's life, now that his boy's back especially. Mm-hmm. So... Like it's obtuse to say, well, then this is the big bad. And if you defeat this guy, then it's over. No, this is what the house has given him as his 
his monstrous past as his thing to overcome. So, 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 I mean, like it didn't have to be Ben. It didn't have to be Ben, but because it was Roger, it was Ben. Yeah. If it was you, it would have been that Candyman standy in the video store. It could have been. Yeah. It could have been something like that. If it was me, it'd be my dad axe and he'd still look a lot like Ben, I suppose. Yeah. But that's not even a huge enough regret, really. The house wouldn't, it would have bypassed that. I can't even think of something that it would be if it were me. Mm -hmm. As fun as the standy, (laughs) the Candyman standy, which would be kind of funny if it came haunting you through the bathroom mirror. Mm -hmm. And fitting. (laughs) And fitting. Um, It really, it really is cool. And this begins a chase sequence throughout this film where uh, Ben, the zombified Ben, Big Ben, is just tearing through the house and is going to take Roger's boy because in his estimation, that will make us even. That will... I'm going to kill your son. I'm going to get you for this. I'm that gonna, or kill yourself. Yeah, yeah. And and so and that is what this house ultimately seems to want to do. We can know at this point now that that's, that eventually after all of these years, the house finally got to the end. Yeah, and if it just had worn on her so long or if it had been subtle and all of a sudden found the one thing that would have got to her, because some of the things in that it was doing to her, according to her paintings, and the things it was showing her, should have clawed at those cracks in her psyche to the point that she broke down. Who knows what it was? That or maybe she just, like, hit a certain point in age where she's like, oh, I'm getting really old. Oh, that lump looks pretty lumpy. I think I'll just hang myself Mm -hmm. instead of go for a biopsy, which I can totally relate to. It's hard to say. It's really hard to say. But I think that... um, Maybe the stakes weren't as high. Maybe the stakes weren't as high with her and she had nothing that she really regretted. They'd be like... Show us your six. I'll show you your. I'll show you an image of your successful hot rock star horror novelist nephew. <laughs> Boo! You know, like, oh, those flowers are wilting outside. I'm a wilted flower. Yeah, like, I was like, could could uh, could could this house hurt anybody that had either a super mundane life or a really good life? I'm the shoelace. Let's end and become free. <laughs> I am the bread that was moldy before you realized and made a sandwich and took a bite out of it and oh the back has mold on it (laughs) I'm that peach pit you said on your nightstand before you thought better of it and put put it in the trash like a grown up Uh, I'm super mundane life <laughs> I'm that waiter you didn't say thank you to when you had your glass of water refilled twice. I'm that CD you should have bought, but then came back the next day and then it was sold out and you thought, ah, oh, what a bummer. I guess I'll just order it online. I'm the library book you returned two days late and then lied to the clerk about. <laughs> We joke, but these are all like horrible. I don't want to be reminded of any of that shit. Maybe the house just didn't have an angle on her. Maybe. <laughs> she lives such a perfectly clean life. And, you know, someone would be like, oh, you almost didn't say thank you to that waiter. I have to because my house might torment me for weeks. <laughs> Maybe. Make you a lot more polite in life. Um, 
this sequence that happens, it, it, it goes on for a little bit, but one of the best scenes, one of my favorite scenes, is when we think that that Roger's about to uh, fall off the side of this house. Now, the back of this house is just this massive cliff. A cliff, and what we can understand, especially with the sequels of this movie, is like this house. Really, what it represents is like a gateway into something supernatural, something that can wear on you, creatures and all kinds of fucking things. This crazy, undescribable place full of creatures that come of their own will, and the way that they actually look is, I think, the thing in the closet. But then they end up morphing into things fit with the psyche of the person they're attacking and Mm -hmm. why they're attacking who knows it's i keep thinking it's much like the lasser glass which sort of elevates that fucking oculus but like that's Mm -hmm. one thing i liked about it was why does this glass do what it does yeah i think for a movie like house you don't really need a, 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 a cut and dry explanation about why because it's more fun to think about it but i do want to point out that this movie even though it is a horror comedy has a lot of subtlety subtext and really brilliant stuff in it and i think that one of the things that people forget about this movie is the fact that it has a lot of very serious undertones to it that have been glossed over by some of the funnier bits and the fact that you have some a big comedic actors and, and stuff like that. I get that. Like but, the hiding the dead body scene. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Everyone loves a good, funny hiding a dead body scene. Yeah, exactly. But the cliff scene is as harrowing as the please kill me scene. Like the scene in the jungle is straight out of the most tense, dramatic war film you've ever seen. This cliff scene, again, is from the most tense action film end game scene that you've ever seen Mm -hmm. you have you have ben standing over him he's been talking mad shit the entire time and 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 really really pushing home the fact that that you left me to die and you deserve to die because of that and just as he's like pushing down on the guy's hand as he's barely holding on to the cliff um roger whips his belt pulls the pulls up Ben off the cliff and you think that's the end of it but it's not so simple like that it's not cut and dry because these creatures move independently of all logic and reason and the house basically is their home so i think that they can return there at will mm-hmm. so oops in the same way that um the, the the man in the wall in the gate can move throughout the house however it wants this is kind of the same thing so he thinks everything's over and like he's going to go get his boy who's been hiding and oh shit, no. Ben has the boy in his clutches and is going to cut the guy's throat, threaten him. But Roger gets this interesting inclination. And I'm not going to say it's like Nightmare on Elm Street where Nancy's like, I take away every bit of power I ever gave you. But it is that. He comes to the realization that Ben and really any of these things don't really don't really have the ability to hurt him. He can't really do anything to him. And he knows this because he gets his hand severed and then his hand is not severed anymore. So as the audience, are we thinking... It's all in his mind. It's, it's completely it's all, all in his, his head. It's all completely He's in his mind. Rocker. Is it completely all in his mind? Or we come to his conclusion that, yes, okay, so these things can hurt you in a way they can scare you but ultimately, they need you to kill yourself because they can't physically affect you in See, a meaningful Oculus way. See, Oculus is just a big fucking rip off a house. 
There's that. However, the creature from the closet left a, a really bad scratch on the guy's chest. Yeah. That and was I permanent. I do like, though, that the way he's thinking about it now is much like you have to think about it as a kid or be told to think about it as a kid. Oh, there's a monster in my closet. It's like, well, if it doesn't if it doesn't work to convince a kid there's no monster in their closet, you have to convince them that the monster can't hurt them. Mm-hmm. So it's like, okay, yes, yes, there's a monster under your bed. I get that you will not believe a word I say, but it won't hurt you. Mm-hmm. You know, you can even go so far with some kids. This works sometimes is you write a contract between the monster and the kid, and then you put the contract in the closet. So when the kid falls asleep, you as the adult go and sign it in your best monster handwriting. So the kid thinks that there's a contract between it and the monster, and the monster's not allowed to attack. I would just like write like my monster name with like my right hand. Yeah. And then so it's all like squiggly and shit. Yeah. That's what I did. <laughs> it worked. It was a babysitting gig that went horribly awry. So he does seem to be ascribing this whole kid's psyche to it. It's like, if I don't believe in you, you don't exist. Or Simpson's psyche, you just don't look. (laughs) Once he realizes that he can pull his boy away from Ben, no problem. Ben seems genuinely distressed by the fact that seems like Rogers cracked the code a little bit. He goes from being a, a very domineering and violent presence to... Almost like, wait, 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 no, no, I'll get you for this. Uh, I'm serious. I'll hurt him. Like, it's kind of like that. (laughs) Uh, Like if Gomer Pyle is trying to kill somebody. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. But then Roger takes a grenade off of Ben's belt, shoves it up into the dude's rib cage, pulls the pin, pulls the pin, then shoves it up into the guy's rib cage. Which is probably one of my favorite. Like, all the while, this monster, this ghoul that Ben is, is just amazing looking through the whole thing. Every fucking shot, I'm just marveling over this sexy, rotted corpse, right? So him reaching his hand right up there, there's a little bit of ooh factor, but he's pretty dry. So it's kind of, like, funny. I don't know. I, I, I would like to reach up there and see what it feels like all up in there. But we get to see sort of what it feels like all up in there because he blows apart moments later. And that's the end of Ben. I slow motion, like frame by frame that scene. And it wasn't even that great of an effect. Back then, pretty cool. Nowadays, I'd love to see a nice, uh, sort of like at the end of Inbred. You get to see someone blown up really nicely. Mm-hmm. Or you want like four cameras on the shot so you can like, it can repeat it in different angles and shit like that. Also, you'd figure that I remembered it like because it was like, oh, that wasn't too spectacular. I remember it being way more spectacular. <laughs> so I remember lots of Jaws being way more spectacular than it actually is. After the house is, is up, Rogers, Rogers with his boy, his ex-wife shows up. She's elated to see her son. I don't know how he's going to explain where the fuck this kid came from, but whatever. Why Who you... cares? Like at that point, like he's already been questioning himself through the whole thing because he saw his wife on TV and was all like, uh, maybe she's not dead. Maybe that thing doesn't exist. I don't know what's going on. So at this point, he's so used to like sort of like trying to explain these things to himself. He's given up on that. So when they're like, well, where did he come from? He's like, I don't fucking know. Because what answer can he really give? The bathroom mirror? If he wanted to explain it all, at least he has those paintings to help back him up. But otherwise, he could have been like, oh, well, maybe that car that we thought snatched him did and dropped him off. Or he could even, like, people who are watching this film or even people who are disengaged from it, narratively speaking, in the movie, they could even just 
rationalize. He has post-traumatic stress disorder. He is surrounded by his aunt's paintings. His aunt's paintings fueled his hallucinations. She killed him herself. She killed herself. She killed herself. And now he's looking at all these paintings and these and, and he's like, these these paintings are what I was seeing. They'd be like, well, you were seeing the paintings. It's like Kaiser Soze's story. Yeah. Yeah, sort of thing. That or they could ask the kid. They could ask the kid. I'd love to hear where the kid has been. You know, that looked like a pretty rocking fucking place. Yeah. Zombie and, and how did like and how did he sur- like like survive for so long in there? Because especially he's... with that fucking demon's head bat creature, what the hell? Mm-hmm. That is the scariest looking bat wing skull creature. That looks fucking fantastic off of a fucking album cover. Like it looks amazing. Yeah, I love that, and it's actually kind of more terrifying than anything in Army of Darkness. Like done better. Yeah, like I like I think that we were talking about that as like the flying creature in Army of Darkness. I like quite a bit, but I, but like no, I agree. This is a scarier, more a less human, unnatural looking thing. So I agree. Yeah, it's pretty fucking like. But again, the special effects work across this fucking film is brilliant. It's incredibly well done. This movie deserves the praise that it gets for that alone. I think that. Again, like I was saying, the storyline is extremely tight. It's extremely solid. It's compelling. There's comedic elements, which I feel distract from it, but I don't dislike them. I wish maybe it was... I do... This is one of those rare instances where I agree with you tonally. If this, Sorry, I got overly excited there. Where where I agree tonally, a tonal shift would make this incredibly crazy to me. Like... like maybe would this would jump into like maybe my, one of my top 10 horror films if it was darker and i normally don't i like comedy i like to laugh i don't mind when things are funny uh and sometimes some of my favorite horror movies are that but i think that in this case the comedy detracts people from noticing what's really great about it yeah okay that's exactly where i'm coming from because most of my favorite horror movies do not have one lick of comedy in them mm-hmm. and while there are some darkly comedic moments, we'll get to see a little more of this sort of thing in 1408, which I think owes a lot to House. Mm-hmm. Have you watched 1408 before? Uh, no, this will be my first time. Excellent. Okay, we're going to have a lot of fun, you and I. <laughs> and this, that, that keeps me from having to ask you, what do we got next for him? Yeah. Because we got 1408 coming up. Then maximum overdrive, which we're gonna like rock out with our oh cocks my God. directly you, out. My my cock is going to be on the table the entire recording. Yeah, same here. It's awesome. I hope they don't touch because that's really weird. <laughs> and on that note, I'm Les Knight. And I'm Typical Lydia. And you've been listening to Dead Air. <laughs>